Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're doing Wu Zhangshan, continuing our little trend here of doing Chinese political theorists. Wu Zhangshan was born in 1909 under the Qing Dynasty, in the final years of the Qing Dynasty. Indeed, it collapsed in 1912 when Wu was just three years old. During the Republic from 1912 to 1949, Mu spent his time in a variety of Chinese universities. When the nationalist government went into exile in 1949, Mu followed the nationalists to Taiwan. He then split time between Taiwan and Hong Kong until he died in 1995. So we are dealing very much with a theorist who picked Taiwan and not the PRC. Mu sought to put the Confucian tradition into conversation with the Western tradition especially with Kant. At the time that Mu was coming up, Western ideas were considered really cool in China. Mu liked a lot of classical texts, and he thought if he could show that if Confucianism could improve on Kant, that would establish that Confucianism is still relevant, that the classical texts are still relevant, and that this Chinese tradition should continue. He was also willing to draw on Buddhism and Taoism to defend the Confucian tradition against accusations of irrelevance. As you might notice if you, you know, study ancient Greek stuff, you know, if the pagans are fighting against the Christians, then all of the divisions within the pagans tend to become less important. So in a similar way here, because Mu is trying to establish that the Chinese classical tradition is important, he's willing to draw on all parts of it, and he wants to emphasize that all parts have something to add or contribute. So he's less focused on litigating disputes between, say, Confucians and Buddhists than some earlier Confucian theorists might have been. Along those lines, he suggests that these different Chinese philosophical positions are part of a dialectical progression toward ever more perfect forms of teaching. He describes a historical process in which Confucianism assimilated first Taoism and then Buddhism into itself. By the Ming period, Wu thinks that China was ready to become modern in much the same way that the West became modern. He then argues that this modernization was interrupted and deflected and obstructed by first the Manchus, the invaders who founded the Qing dynasty, and then by the Maoists. So for him, this syncretism involves a lot of different things. It involves Kant, it involves the Western tradition, it involves the ancient Chinese schools, but it excludes the Manchus and it excludes the Maoists. So this is a syncretism which contains certain pivotal exclusions. So what interested Mu about Kant? Well, Kant suggests that we cannot know anything directly. But Mu wants to argue that this is not true when it comes to morality. For Mu, we have a kind of moral intuition that allows us to directly apprehend the good in an unmediated way. This intellectual intuition is for Mu the most important contribution Chinese philosophy has to make. And in his view, it's a position that is shared by Confucians, Buddhists, and Taoists. The person who has perfected intellectual intuition is the sage or the Buddha. Mu claims that this intellectual intuition is available to everyone and that it is a higher and more fundamental kind of knowledge than the knowledge we acquire through the senses. He suggests that this intellectual intuition is there when we see the child about to fall down the well. You know, the famous story about the child about to fall down the well and how we feel about it, and why we feel the way we feel. For Mu, the answer is that this is intellectual intuition. The feeling that we're having, that's evidence that intellectual intuition exists. This intellectual intuition allows us to have ontology without grasping, 
an ability to know things in themselves without the illusion that these things are separate objects. Sensory empiricism is focused around ontology with grasping, and for Mu, it operates at a lower level of sophistication than ontology without grasping. A perfect teaching moves the student from this lower level to the higher level through the use of paradoxes that flatly state that the subject and the object are the same thing. And according to Mu, only Chinese philosophy has perfect teaching. This is something that Western philosophy lacks. And this absence of perfect teaching in Western philosophy, this inability to deal with contradictions, is a core limitation of the Western approach. Now, Hegelians may have a bone to pick with that, but we'll move on. If everyone has intellectual intuition and the Chinese schools have perfect teaching, that means that sagehood is possible for everybody because everybody has intellectual intuition and through perfect teaching, everybody can realize the potential of that intellectual intuition. But if everybody can be a sage, then wouldn't that position everyone to fully understand the meaning of rituals and to revise them? If you think back to our Confucius episode, there I kind of drew a distinction between the gentleman and the sage. The gentleman follows the rituals with reverence, with the right kind of attitude, but is not so advanced as to fully understand the rituals to the point at which the gentleman can update them or change them. Only the sage is so advanced as to do that. If everybody is a sage or everybody can become a sage, that would seem to imply that there's going to be a lot of people who would be in position to potentially contribute to the revision of rituals. Now, you can read this in a democratic kind of way, that this has a democratic implication. And this is how Mu prefers you to read it. Democratic implication being if everybody has uh, the capacity for sagehood, then everybody should be able to participate in politics and a democratic political system is implied by this. And in this way, Confucianism is brought into harmony with liberal democratic thinking. Of course, you could take it in a different direction. You could suggest it has a Marxist implication. Uh, maybe the working class might plausibly have a right to fundamentally restructure society on the basis that the ordinary peasant or Chinese worker is a kind of sage and therefore ought to be the revolutionary subject who revises or changes over the rituals. Now, Mu hates Marxism and he wishes to avoid implications of that kind. So, Mu embraces the division Western philosophers erect between morality and politics. So, for Mu, while politics develops out of morality, it must be evaluated through political standards that are independent from moral standards and not identical to them. Politics is oriented toward what is legal than what seems right according to intellectual intuition. Therefore, once we enter the terrain of politics, we are bound by the law rather than by moral conscience. And so the fact that we are sages, or that we may become sages, does not give us the right to remake the law. The sage instead must come to understand why the law is morally necessary and then abide by it. This is very similar to the way Kant handles the same issue. For Kant, the state is created for moral reasons, but once it is created, it is politically binding. And even when the state asks you to do something that you think is morally wrong, if you were to challenge the state's order outright, you would collapse the space in which morality can take place. And therefore, you have to obey the state, even in cases where the state does things that you think are wrong. Very similar move. The move protects against Marxism, but I think at a very high price for the Confucian tradition, because it guts one of the most dynamic features of ancient Confucianism. Ancient Confucianism, the Confucianism of Confucius himself, was forged in the fires of the Warring States period, specifically for the purpose of revising and updating the political system and the rituals to make these social technologies more effective in a new context. For Confucius, the sage has this very pivotal role to play, not just in restoring obedience to the old law, but in transforming and updating and improving upon. To get to sagehood, you have to go through quite a lot. 
But once you get there, then you're in position to play this very dynamic role in revising fundamental stuff, right? Mu doesn't want that kind of fundamental revision. So he restricts what the sage can do, but then suggests everybody can be a sage. But I, I do want to suggest that politics is arguably not just submission to law. It's also the domain in which law is challenged and reconstituted. You know, for Mu, we can use intellectual intuition to help existing political structures achieve their potential so we can engage in politics in a morally informed way, but in a way that's constrained by political normativity, i.e. the law. Right? And that means that reform is okay, but never revolution. New developments have to be assimilated into existing systems and fundamental breaks are never necessary. And if you think about how he describes the development of the Confucian tradition, it's very much along these lines. New stuff comes in, Taoism comes in, Buddhism comes in, Kant comes in. But when they come in, they have to be assimilated into the Confucian tradition. There cannot be a fundamental break. And so the people who think that Confucianism can be abandoned or left behind are trying to engage in the kind of fundamental break that is prohibited in much the same way that here, you know, trying to change the overall legal structural form is a kind of decisive break that uh, for Mu involves disrespecting the constraints imposed by the political. So that's kind of my impression to start. I think there are certain things about Mu that I find very interesting. For instance, the idea that morality comes first, that some notion of the good comes first, and that you can't apply the same kind of epistemological evaluation to the concept of the good that you might apply to sensory objects. You know, I think that's a very compelling idea. Uh, but I, I do think that this question of, of what do you do with the sages here is a major issue. If you're going to have everybody as a sage, then that would suggest everybody is capable of changing things. But if you're going to say, oh, no, you can't change things very much, well, then what's the point of making everybody a sage? It, it's a way of constraining the effect that democracy has. Anyway, those are my initial impressions. But I'm curious to see if Alex agrees or if there were other things that Alex found as he was reading that stood out to him. What do you mean it constrains democracy? It limits because it suggests that everyone is capable of participating, but no one is capable of, of changing the fundamental political system. So it gives the citizen the right to be a participant in a, a liberal democratic framework, but not the right to question that framework or to change it. If they did question it or change it, they would be maybe like just one of these offensive people in history where you have to you have to say they're necessary, but at the same time, not like a necessary evil. I don't know. Like oh, this is one of the things about the, the Confucian sage is that the Confucian sage is kind of upsetting, you know, especially in that early ancient Confucian form. The Confucian sage is speaking up for ritual, but also reframing ritual and reshaping it and changing it in ways that lead to the creation of you know, a, a kind of cult following around Confucius of these gentlemen who want to live the way that Confucius is suggesting that people ought to live. And Confucius may suggest as part of legitimating that way of living that it's the way everybody has historically lived, but there's updating going on there. The sage is playing a very proactive role in you know, transforming or updating. The sage creates the sense that there's continuity and that there's a connection to the way things used to be done. But the sage is very much in the business of changing stuff. But then, Whereas, as in this form of Confucianism, that seems to have gone away. As in, it goes away because they arrive at some final synthesis, which doesn't need endless struggle or killing. Well, for one, Mu makes sagehood much more accessible. So, in our episode, we were discussing you know, Song Ming Confucianism. One of the big debates is how much teaching and training is necessary for someone to be a sage. Well, it seems to be quite a bit. And if it's a lot of, of teaching and training, well, then there's this question of how much is enough. And if someone can just pretend that they've received the teaching and training when they haven't really by reciting quotes from the Analects, that doesn't do you very much good. So you get into this big debate about, well, what's really necessary to be a sage? And one of the moves that gets made is to go, well, maybe you don't need any of this cultivation at all, and maybe everybody can be a sage. Well, under the original form that this 
theory takes, as I understand it. And of course, different Confucians will interpret you know, different cortex differently. But as I understand it, there is a lot of room for the sage to play this very dynamic, transformative role. The sage is not that different from, say, the reorderer of republics in Machiavelli or the uh, legislator in Rousseau. The sage you know, constructs ritual in a way that's informed by the purpose and importance of rituals. So the sage doesn't just dismissively throw out old rituals, but tweaks them, changes them, modifies and updates them. Uh, sometimes in quite significant ways, but in ways that blend that change into the situation so that there's also continuity. Uh, I think that this move to make everybody a sage either produces a situation in which there is a mandate to make very fundamental big change because lots and lots of people are given the epistemic position to make the judgment, or you, you have to diminish sagehood by taking away from the sage the, some of the sage's capacities. And I think what Mood does is he makes the sage less of a sage by suggesting that the sage isn't really fit to reconstruct the law or the fundamentals of the state. He's, he's diminished the sage. He's made sagehood accessible, but in, in the course of doing that, diminished its dynamic quality. Is that because they're too kind in a way? They have to n not conflict with others. And then, yeah, if they see a, an opposing idea, they won't see it as an object. They'll see it as a subject, part of themselves, something to be kind to. And then that means obedience to things that disagree with you. Well, you know, I think that might be a, a way of trying to defend the move. But I do think that there are times in Chinese history where it has been more apparent to Confucians that bigger changes or updates are necessary. Necessary not just for, uh, you know, because of injustice, but because of disorder, right? In the Warring States period, the thing that was motivating you wasn't hatred of, of the old system. Confucius never hated the old system. He was incredibly reverent toward it, but he was motivated by seeing that it was not functional and seeing that there needed to be, you know, really quite significant changes in the way things were done to make it functional, to make it workable. So it doesn't have to come with this attitude of, of kind of radical antagonism, right? You can make radical change without being full of hatred for the old world. You can say, well, there were reasons why it worked that way before, but those reasons no longer apply here. You know, the context is shifted in ways that require larger, more fundamental change. And sometimes you get into these situations where if there isn't larger, more fundamental change, nothing can really move. You know, I'm reminded of Walter Scheidel's book, The Great Leveler, where he talks about you know, how economic inequality, you know, it, once it gets big, it becomes self-reinforcing and it becomes very difficult to disrupt it unless there's some kind of big cataclysmic change a war, a civil conflict, a plague, you know, something very big has to happen. There has to be a period of instability where larger changes are made. Otherwise, it just keeps going and going and going. And one response to that is to say, well, that kind of disturbance is too much. And so, therefore, you must always accept the inequality and you must never get rid of it because that would involve disturbance. A different attitude is to say some situations call for disturbance. And I think that the Confucianism of Confucius has room in it for the possibility that certain situations call for disturbance. Uh, disturbance in the service of creating peace. Does that apply to when he says that the big fundamental change we need to make is to notice the need for learning? which then implies that, yeah, we're not honest in some way, even though we have all these advancements of civilization. Yeah, he, he makes a suggestion, uh, Yamu does, that the Chinese have perfect teaching, but they don't have uh, what, what he calls kingship. They are internally advanced, but they're not able to project that out in their outward action. Whereas the Westerner has, the, has kingship, but lacks the teaching. So the Westerner is able to act, but doesn't have the internal understanding that's necessary to 
appropriately evaluate situations. I'm not clear on what is, yeah, where he goes beyond Kant, because Kant, uh, it seems similar when you're talking about the noumenal or the transcendent, otherworldly being, and then the sageliness, and then the phenomena. And just basically having these two the, levels, yeah. He, he more or less embraces Kant, except he wants to say that the critique that Kant makes of, uh, you know, knowing that our ability to know the thing in itself doesn't apply to the concept of the good, that we have a direct route to the good, and therefore we're not plagued by the Kantian problem in that area and that area alone. Sorry, you mean Kant said we didn't have a direct route to the good, but right. here we do because even even this Buddhist idea, this difficult situations are needed and then you can have a spontaneous release or or like- in, Well, this intellectual it. intuition that he supposes that we have, you know, if you go back to the well, the child falling into the well, we have an intellectual intuition that something is terribly wrong if a child is about to fall into a well or, and that intellectual intuition is for him a direct connection to value that does not require any mediation in the way that, say, our perception of a statue requires mediation, you know, where the sensory is not the thing itself. But that doesn't mean it's perfect as it is. It just means that every moment you have to listen to some intuition that says a child might be about to fall into a well. Well, the intellectual intuition has to be, this is where the teaching comes in. It has to be perfected through teaching. And so what he suggests is that over the years, the Chinese have discovered not just good and effective forms of teaching, but perfect teaching, which I think is interesting because certainly in the Song Ming period, there was no agreement that there was perfect teaching. <laughs> Quite the contrary, there was a lot of arguing about the effectiveness of teaching. But you know, part of the argument here is that by properly assimilating everything that the Buddhists and Taoists have to contribute, you can get to this, this perfect teaching. When I, one quote I wrote down about perfect and sudden teaching is basically you have both greed, aversion, delusion, and then also using them as the way. So it's like you cancel the dialectic. I don't know how that translates into more political stuff, though. Isn't that assumed in a way? It's just like the perfect teaching just means light and dark together. Well, I think to make it a little bit more specific, it's not just contradiction. It's specifically focusing on, in the West, we have this notion that the object and the subject are two different things, right? The one that is observing and the, the thing that is observed are two separate things. And so, for me, perfect teaching involves not just eroding this distinction, but outrightly stating that the thing that is, is object and the thing that is subject are the same thing. Is that, say you imagine it at first, and then what appears changes. And then based on what appears changes, you can see, oh, uh, the, the outcomes or consequences basically depend on this assumption or that assumption. So just like it's, it's meant to be blander than that. It, it, uh, uh, not blander, bolder than that. Oh. Um, more on its face than that, right? What makes it perfect teaching is that there's no talking around it. There's no explaining it. It's just offering the contradiction, right? Just, it's just the contradiction just stated baldly straight up. Is that to see how you react, how you take it? It's, it's to disrupt the ordinary way of thinking by straightforwardly contradicting it in a way that forces you to have to grapple with how could that possibly be? How could it be that, you know, you see the grass, you are the grass. <laughs> how can that be? And then you have to think about it. It sounds straightforwardly false, but if you stay with it for a while, you'll see what's true about it. Yeah. And so for Mu, that's the best way to teach people that, the subject-object distinction is illusory. So you don't even need to apply it to politics in the sense that some topics are static and some are evolving. 
some are like it's this way it's limited no question and then some are like oh these are open for discussion evolving yes you are the grass etc it's you don't even need to apply it you just it's just if you train people to think that way then the kinds of questions that come up will change it's like yeah it's like the guiding ideal i don't, I don't know <laughs> yeah if you might think about say how uh, a marxist might conceptualize society is split up into classes right well you know you you as the social scientist uh, you're studying these different classes and you're going well this is what the bourgeoisie is up to and this is what the proletariat is up to well you are the proletariat and you are the bourgeoisie well, and the bourgeoisie is proletariat right? these kinds of straight claims that are contradictory you are the immigrant or yes you are the slave yeah. master <laughs> Right. You are all, you know, anything that you try to make an object, you are that. Okay. The subject is always the object. So anything that you try to distance yourself from, actually, in some sense, you are that thing. And if you consider how you are, if you work back to that, it's then you come to a more spiritually enlightened position on the subject. Now, I'm not saying that that necessarily is perfect teaching. That's what I take. That, that's how I'm understanding them. And the thing is, you know, if that's not perfect teaching, if that doesn't solve the problem, well, then that reintroduces the question of can everybody really be a sage? Because even if everybody does have intellectual intuition, can everybody have that intuition developed? And we have, say... Other theorists who might suggest that what's really needed for something like intellectual intuition to develop is certain material circumstances, like, say, you know, Aristotle might make the case that you need leisure time, and to have leisure time, then you need a surplus, and to have a surplus, then you need a society with classes, where one of the classes is the exploited class that gives you the surplus, so that there's enough extra time around for some people to have leisure time and to become cultivated. And if that's the case, if it requires something like that, then only a small number of people will actually get there. Is it disputed in most tradition that you need to take care of the health and the, yeah, the leisure time before you can cultivate? I thought it's, a, it's like agreed upon that you can't do cultivation without health and money. Well, there are different questions about how, hard, how much you need. So, for someone like Aristotle, where you need a lot of time, leisure time is the core currency and it's something that you can't all have, especially in an antique agrarian society. You can't all have it. So, some people are going to get it at the expense of other people and society becomes a way of distributing this very scarce commodity, which is time. Right? If you have that kind of view like Aristotle, then it becomes a very difficult thing to pull off. Actually making someone who is you know, like a Confucian sage becomes very difficult to do. But if you have a view like, say, Gandhi's view, Gandhi argues that the Varna system, you know, what we tend to refer to as the castes, though Gandhi does not like it when you refer to the Varna system as a caste system. Uh, if you have something like the Varna system, then everybody already knows what their job is. And because everybody already knows what their job is, it doesn't take people all day long to do their job. They've learned their job from the time they were a small kid, and therefore they have time available for cultivation, even if they are in a very traditional working class kind of role, right? Even if they are uh, a producer, they, they would have time and they would still be able to spiritually cultivate. And therefore, large numbers of people could be spiritually developed. Right? So, you have different stories about this, and these different stories give rise to different accounts about how many people can have the cultivation. And then this often suggests different political projects, because if lots of people can have it, then that may, it has more democratic implications. If very few people can have it, it has less democratic implications. And of course, over time, it may be that, say, leisure time becomes more widely distributed in such a way that more people could have it than could previously have it. And so, at that point, you would have a reason to potentially think that the kind of political system that could work at an earlier stage of economic development might be uh, more restricted than what's available at later stages. 
Yeah. It's evil to say it's necessary evil for people to be insecure in order for a few to have leisure time to cultivate. But it's only evil because we've got past the need for leisure time to some amount enough. Well, I mean, maybe. Have we? I I don't know. Uh, This is, I think, one of the things that we're always talking about is just how much do you actually need to become the kind of person who's able to perform the functions of citizenship in the kind of polity that you're in, right? And sometimes to make a, a democracy, the way that you do it is by greatly limiting the actual things that you ask of your citizens. If you ask your citizens to do very little, then they don't need to have very advanced capacities to function as citizens. I think broadly speaking, this is the liberal democratic approach is ask very little of your citizens epistemically. And so even if your citizens don't really know anything about what's going on, it's no problem politically because you're not demanding anything of them. And there's loads and loads and loads of them. Is Yeah. But in you know, other kinds of states, if you're asking more of your citizens uh, and it's harder to see plausibly how large numbers of citizens could do all of the things that you're asking them to do, then you need some kind of story about how you do make a real citizen who's capable of actually performing the functions. So in an ancient Greek city where the citizenship tends to be more restricted and where most of the political theorists prefer a more restricted conception of citizenship, that leads to kind of advanced civic education theories. If you look at... You know, Platonic or Aristotelian accounts, you get these very complex civic education theories because you are asking a lot of your citizen and you need to tell a story about how you can actually get someone who can do all that. Similarly, as we've been doing the Confucians, I've been kind of focused on how much does a person need to do to be a sage? And is sagehood widely available or is it not? Uh, And the move to say, well, sagehood is widely available has democratic implications, but it also potentially has radical implications insofar as if anybody, regardless of economic class, can be a sage, then that means that when the worker says this this system is not appropriate, that that is something that's being said potentially by a sage and ought to be taken seriously. But if you're going to back away from that, and, and Mood tries to have it both ways here. He suggests that there's a democratic implication, but then he caps it. I, I find that position very unsatisfying as a, a place to stop. But you can see why someone like Mu, who is A, fleeing communist China, B, situating himself in Taiwan in a state that you know, is, is closely tied to the United States, would take a position like that. Isn't it also wanting peace? Because you don't, if you expect everyone to have potential to be a sage, it's like asking everyone to die in the phalanx, like the ancient story. And then you need to have a, a very big story about these are your duties. And yeah, it's harder. Well, I mean, if it really is the case that everybody can be a sage, the sage would not desire a new uh, or different political system flippantly out of lack of consideration. A sage is a sage. If you really take seriously the idea that lots of people can be sages, then if lots of people say, hey, we ought to make big changes here, well, there may be something to that if they really are sages. So, if you're going to say, well, lots of people can be sages, you got to take seriously what that implies. (laughs) Lots of people in China who have been in China and uh, had access to Chinese perfect teaching (laughs) Lots of them ended up coming to the conclusion that major social changes were needed, both in Mu's time and in the time of Confucius in the Warring States period. But if you're going to say, well, actually, that is something that is restricted only to a very narrow set of people, then that limits who really counts as able to say authoritatively what kind of change is necessary. Um, and yeah, I think that there's an argument to be made that lots of people don't achieve sagehood. We've considered at many points arguments that sagehood is very difficult to get and maybe civic education is really very important to get it. But I've, I've also found it interesting in recent episodes to talk about people who think either that sagehood is kind of bunk and nobody gets it or that civic education doesn't really matter or that very limited kinds of civic education are you know, enough. And this, you know, this perfect teaching account I'm not satisfied that perfect teaching is as, I mean, one way of trying to square this would be to say that perfect teaching 
is actually not that widely available in China. That actually the set of people who do get exposed to these bald contradictions in China are very limited in, in their scope, and they all tend to come from a certain class. And so even though everybody has intellectual intuition, only rich people still become sages. <laughs> that would be one way of trying to square this and make it still have a restriction on who becomes a sage. But uh, I don't see why in a system where you can have you know, large-scale public education, if, if giving people contradictions of this kind was enough, if that's perfect teaching... It doesn't seem that difficult to give people that teaching. The teaching doesn't seem that difficult to actually give. And if you can just give it to lots of people, if everybody has intellectual intuition and all you have to do for them to develop it is give them these contradictions. Well, then why can't you have lots of sages? And if you can have lots of sages, well, why do you cap what they can do? And isn't it really up to the sage to think about it? And I mean, maybe, maybe the sage will, upon looking at all of this, decide to agree with Mu that they shouldn't change the law. But if, if anyone has the right to change the law, it's the sage. And if no one has the right to change the law, well, isn't the political system going to eventually encounter a context in which it's not functional and there will be no one around to update it? <laughs> because if all the sages have the attitude that they can't change the law, then they won't update it when it needs updating. Leaving aside, you know, concerns about whether the system is just or whether it's good, there will come a time when any system that human beings make is dysfunctional because the context that it's in is no longer similar to the context in which it was created. No human system perfectly anticipates new contexts and new situations such that it can go on forever and ever and ever. Even if a system's very dynamic and adaptable, it can only go on for a long while, not forever and ever. So, in that situation, somebody's going to have to change the system. And in Confucianism, clearly that someone is the sage. But if Mu says even the sage can't, well, then you know, this risks the kind of Confucianism that people make fun of, the Confucianism that is just committed to tradition and just committed to keeping things the same and is thoroughgoingly conservative in a way that leads to sclerosis. But Mu's whole motivation here is to show the Westerner that Confucianism is dynamic and compatible with modernity and relevant in modernity. That's the motivation. So, I, I, I'm bothered by this. This doesn't seem to me to quite fit together. But I think it's interesting to play with it. Now, I like the ontology with grasping, the ontology without grasping distinction. I think that's interesting. I think that has a lot of validity. Maybe perfect teaching just means you're even-minded enough to say... Oh no, there's even-mindedness. There is a an amount of even-mindedness that is there at all times, just in different people. So you just ask, or yeah, you ask the advice of certain people <laughs> um, without you know, every moment, basically. And they might be different, but you don't have to wait a thousand years for the next one. Well. He does suggest that the Westerners don't have perfect teaching and that the Chinese philosophers do. So, perfect teaching can't just be something that resides in everyone. It has to come about through a kind of gradual syncretism of, of Confucianism with Buddhism and Taoism, these different perspectives gradually coming together. And maybe Kantianism is one of the perspectives that contributes to this. But... The argument here is that there's still this need for the ancient Chinese philosophical schools and that the Westerner is not uh, perfectly fine without it. The Westerner is still missing something, which is the perfect teaching. So perfect teaching isn't a given. It's not something everybody has or everybody gets. It seems to be something that develops over a long period of time through the interaction of these different schools. But then once it's developed, I mean, this is where you almost have a kind of progress narrative. Uh, actually, not almost, you do. The progress narrative is that gradually these schools interact with each other. And eventually this leads to better and better forms of teaching, which allows more and more people to more and more easily achieve sagehood, which suggests that 
more democratic implications over time, right? It's similar to kind of a kind of Hegelian notion of, of reaching greater levels of, of self-consciousness, right? Uh, in a similar kind of way, as the teaching becomes refined, it becomes easier to transmit it to larger numbers of people in more diverse circumstances, which would then have a democratic implication. But the only way to stop that democratic implication from having revolutionary political implications is to cap what the sage can do. But that defeats the whole purpose of making more people sages. If you're going to cap what the sage can do, if you're going to say the sage is nonetheless bound by the law, well, surely the political system you would have when very few people could achieve sagehood would be different from the political system you would have when many people can achieve it because the teaching has improved. Right. If you've gradually gotten to a point where you have better and better kinds of teaching, then you'll get to a point where more and more people can be sages. Once you have large numbers of sages, then you'll need a different political system to accommodate that. But if you have some kind of old system, like, say, the Qing dynasty that concentrates power in a very narrow set of hands, well, that old system isn't going to just willingly get out of the way for a system that is democratic. And indeed, Mu thinks that the Manchus, you know, the Qing dynasty, that it's an obstacle to the great, uh, further flourishing of Chinese philosophy and that the transition to republicanism is necessary. But how could the sage have argued for that transition if the sage is bound by the law? The Manchu law was a set of law, was it not? Are we going to just say it doesn't count because it comes from the Manchu and they are not part of the tradition? What's the basis for excluding the Manchu? Is it just you know, bigotry against the Manchurians? Is it the fact that you can't include two sets of cultural patterns within one border? So even if they both work at subduing the other, they can't share the same space. But you're able to say, you know, Buddhism, you know, even though it has an Indian origin, can become part of the tradition, even though that comes from outside of China. So... It, there's already a claim here that there is something that, that China can learn from something that comes from outside of China, that China can benefit from something from outside. Also, there's a friendliness toward Kant and to the Western tradition. So that's, again, another implication that something can come from outside China and benefit China. But the Manchurians, they can't benefit China for some reason. They're, they're not part of it. You can't, nothing from them. How do you distinguish between the progress and the destiny concepts? Because he mentions destiny a lot, or fortune. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think very often progress narratives have a kind of destiny implication because if you're drawing a progress narrative, you're kind of saying, "Well, there's a trend; it goes this particular way, and if it were to keep going, then this is where you would end up." Like for cer certainly, you would. It's like a track you go down. Yeah. I, well, Mu tends to state a lot of things very straightforwardly. I, I think this is a, an unfortunate consequence of his style is that it causes you to go, well, wait a minute. Are we sure that's true all the time? Because Mu will say, it is this way. It is that way. He makes a lot of flat assertions and he doesn't always like to unpack those assertions and persuade you of them. Even think about how he likes the perfect teaching. The perfect teaching for him is a flat assertion of a contradiction without explanation that forces you to come up with the explanation. So for Mu, the, the best way to teach you is to just flatly make the claim at you, and then you have to figure out why it's true. <laughs> but for that to happen, you have to trust the person who's giving the claim that they are wise and they're the master and you're not. Isn't that where face comes in? If you're, if he's, it's almost like he's being exaggerating uh, no, he's just being too nasty in some areas or too bold in some areas. But maybe that's a way of being polite and actually not being actually critical. Well, I think that this is part of why he tends to suggest that all of the philosophical schools of China throughout all of Chinese history have agreed with him. <laughs> and they've all agreed with each other. Yeah, you know, he tends to minimize these disagreements. And you can find a lot of people who are fans of particular 
Chinese schools or who are fans of particular periods of Confucianism or particular Confucian thinkers who don't like this about Mu, who view it as a kind of arrogant tendency for him to suggest that anybody who's eminent agrees with him already. But of course, if he suggests that what he's doing is just in keeping with the existing teaching, in some ways that presents him as a humble follower in a tradition. So there's a way of looking at it, which frames him as uh, very egotistical and suggesting all these people agree with him. And there's another way of looking at it, which suggests it's, it's very humble for him to say that everything he's saying is derivative. If you look at how Western historians of thought often function, it's kind of similar. There's a tendency to suggest that one's interpretation of a theorist is uh, just what it is that they were saying. But also, it's an interpretation of some famous theorist who has a big name reputation. And so, by interpreting that theorist, you're just kind of stealing valor from that theorist's reputation to push your view. And this is something I think historians have thought do all the time, where they'll go, I'm just interpreting so-and-so, while they use so-and-so to make their own argument. So, plagiarism or? Well, it's not... It's not plagiarism because plagiarism would be claiming that it was their idea. On the contrary, they're suggesting that what is their idea was actually the idea of some long dead theorist who's very famous and well liked. So that way you go, oh, I'm going to take this seriously because it's what Confucius says or it's what, you know, people do this with all kinds of theorists, uh, Plato said or what Marx said or what Nietzsche said. But oftentimes, there's a lot of disagreement about what that person said. And really, you want to say it, but you don't feel like you're in a position to just say it. So, you have to invoke somebody else and say, well, this is just their idea that I'm just interpreting. Some of the most influential historians of thought are masters at pretending all of their ideas come from other people. It's a very effective rhetorical strategy. A lot of neo or new is something else. Yeah. Why have we put neo or new in front of it? Because it's not precisely the same as the word that comes after. But why do they use that word then? Because they want the cred, <laughs> the neo-Kantian, the neo-Platonist, the new Keynesian. They want the cred. And they're happy with the baggage. Yes, they're happy with the baggage is the price for the cred. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Because some amount of baggage does come with it. But also, it's, it's very difficult to get going, uh, especially now with the way that the modern university is constructed, without a bit of that. You know, if you just come in and go, all right, I'm going to start like a theorist from the 1700s. Here are my core premises about how the world works, and here's my theory. Uh, that could be difficult too. Uh, you know, for one, you're not speaking to any existing literature if you do that. You know, unless you situate your ideas in relation to other people, you're not taking account of the literature, right? And if you don't take account of the existing literature, well, that's not considered good practice. So you've got to show how your idea connects or relates to the existing literature. And in the course of doing that, there's a tendency to suggest that your idea comes out of those ideas or is related in some way to those ideas. And that's where the, you know, the process of uh, being humble but also stealing valor, you know, where those things tend to come together. Can you use, uh, I don't know if this is related, but the administrative versus the political kind of government, which are both within the same state, but you have the prime minister and the rational side. And then the emperor and the conquest, the bloody side. And then, yeah, you just have to know which context you're speaking to within the tradition or the culture. Yeah. Well, and you know, one of the things that we've talked about before that has changed in modernity is that the emphasis on the bloody side is reduced and the emphasis on the administrative side is increased. Is that to. It's not intentional or it's not like a – and maybe like in a – just to apply Zizek and be annoying and turn things on their head is the fact that it's not mentioned overtly means that implicitly it's more – people are more aware of it, so it doesn't need to be mentioned. It's like 
yeah, that's the dark, the dark side of it. Well, it, I think it used to be the case that in more societies, the bloody side was glorified and the administrative side was looked down upon as you know, lacking in courage or bravery, especially in societies where the economy was more based on agriculture and therefore controlling land was extremely pivotal and it was very hard to get rich if you didn't have land. Uh, whereas these days where there's more emphasis on commerce and states that are territorially very small can nonetheless get rich, there's less emphasis on conquest as an effective tool. And if anything, conquest tends to disrupt trade and to cause uh, problems. So who keeps the trade operating smoothly? Well, most of the time, we like to think that it's the administrators who do that. Although, of course, there is always a military side to maintaining trade. There's always that side, but that side, we don't really want to talk about that or acknowledge that. And it's often latent. It's often the implicit threat rather than the active use, although it will become active when called upon. You know, what's lauded now is the you know, professional administrator who's very skilled and knows the policy, the policy walk. So we have the outer sageness, but not the, no, we have the inner sageness, but not the outer kingliness because a king is kind of comfortable. I don't know. Having that implicit well, or, or maybe, yeah, displaying that implicit threat. Now, this is one of the things that I think has changed since the 20th century. You know, the 20th century was a century where there was a lot of very overt running around killing people to accomplish things. Uh, you know, especially the first half of the 20th century, uh, you know, a lot of very overt instances of that. And now, even more so, I think, than in the 20th century, and in the 20th century, there was a move in this direction, but even more so now, that is de-emphasized and not treated as something that anyone could advocate for, to the point where if you look at all of the major you know, U.S. military conflicts of the last you know, 20, 30 years or so, the president never campaigns on any of them. You know, the president, when he runs for office, never says, I'm going to go, you know, uh, you know that we're going to fight Russia and Ukraine, or that we're going to fight Gaddafi and Libya, or that we're going to go in, into Iraq, or that we're going to get involved in Somalia or Yugoslavia. Uh, the president never runs on, on doing any of it. You know, if you think back to James K. Polk, you know, President Polk, U.S. President Polk ran on the slogan, 5440 or fight. He was going to insist on a particular boundary with the British. And if they didn't give it to him, he was going to fight them. And that was a reason to vote for him because he was going to be tough and he was going to get you the, the border that you wanted. Now, no president ever runs on actually starting. A, and you could go further back. I mean, really, did anybody run on I'm going to do Vietnam? Did anybody run on I'm going to do Korea? You know, Woodrow Wilson ran on having kept the United States out of the First World War. There is never an open political discussion about whether or not we ought to fight a war. You're either in the situation of the president isn't running on fighting that war, and if in anything is presenting himself as someone who will keep you out of war, and then on the other side, the war has already started. So what, do you want to change horses midstream here? Do you want to give the enemy comfort by suggesting that we aren't united behind the leader? This is the degree to which this aspect is suppressed. We never actually get democratic mandates for these conflicts. Nobody ever runs on starting a war. People only run on finishing them. <laughs> and then are you saying that with the expectation that one day the cycle will go the other way and then you'll... Oh, not necessarily. I, I think progress narratives and cyclical theories of history are always a bit stylized. Reading the context is what's important. If you overproject a trend into the future, you're liable to get in trouble. People who get obsessed with projecting out trends or, or following cycles, you know, sometimes talking about a cycle is useful as a corrective to a progress narrative or talking about a progress narrative is useful as a corrective to a cycle narrative if that narrative has become overly stuck in everybody's mind and nobody can get away from it. But ultimately, if you really want to get stuff right, you have to look at the context. You have to read the specific situation that you're in. 
And you have to get lucky. I mean, even if you are paying attention to the situation, there will always be things that can't be anticipated. And that aren't rational. It, it, people who want to over-theorize what's going to happen get into worse trouble than people who will admit that they don't know certain things. Is it- you know, like with Machiavelli, you, you always have to be aware of the context, but you also need fortune, good fortune, and you can't control fortune. There's the, uh, you know, the saying that fortune favors the brave. Well, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And then once you- but even that's a, that's a guess or a hopeful. Mm. You're hoping that that's true. Certainly, every time it works out, it's because somebody tried something and it worked out, right? So, yeah, their bravery was rewarded insofar as they tried something and it worked. You don't tend to hear about the people who try things and they don't work. Yeah, all I can think of is just when he says that just because something is a motor of history or it develops doesn't mean it's rational or happens for a reason or, yeah. It's a lot, a lot of it's just ch- almost like misfortune and chance. There's always a, a role for that stuff. I think that some theorists want to categorize misfortune and chance as will. They want to suggest that there's more willing that's going on and that it's you know, necessity and will or something like that, something along those lines. But I think characterizing it as will is, is another way of trying to imagine that you have more control over it than you do. And that was one of the things I found really fun when we were doing the manual two episode a while back was that question about voluntary versus involuntary versus mixed voluntary, the category of the mixed voluntary. We just, we're really uncomfortable as people contending with how little we control and how little we understand. We really have a hard time with it. We jump through all sorts of hoops to convince ourselves that we're making the decisions as individuals and not, not that we're just part of things. Because we don't like to suffer? Well, we'd like to think that suffering is deserved. And the only way that suffering can be deserved is if, you know, because we want to think that suffering is justified. We want to think that everything that happens happens for a reason. And therefore, when people suffer, there must be a reason that they suffer. And maybe it's a punishment. Maybe it's their fault. You know, that's an easy way of explaining suffering away. But I've always been more inclined to the idea that suffering happens because the universe is not a perfect place, as evidenced by the fact that we are the universe and we're constantly acknowledging that we don't understand what's going on. We're constantly coming into situations that don't make any sense to us. And we're part of it. And the thoughts that we're having, it's having. So, when we go, oh, this is awful. Well, yeah, the universe frequently confronts ways in which it is imperfect and goes, ah, I don't like this. Which means the universe, you know, insofar as we are it, you know, has some conception of good or better in it and can find that it falls short. Insofar as we find all the time that things fall short and people can go, oh, well, you just have to accept what's natural. Well, part of what's natural is thinking it's not quite right. That's one of the things that we naturally do. <laughs> Use of the natural always involves an exclusion of something that is, of course, part of the world. The unnatural is always natural. Oh, is that like when they, uh, he was talking about in the 20th century in the West, when we talk about mysterious or the beautiful, that becomes unsayable because it's just not, you're not able to see it through the lens of nature. So you may as well not talk about it and just forget about it. Or is it not? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. That's so. an interesting thought. I'm not sure I immediately have a good response to that. But maybe in the episodes to come, we will uh, you know, unpick that some more. Uh, we're at about an hour, so I think I will, I will call a halt. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where we go next. I, I've kind of been... We've kind of been doing a, a set of, of Chinese thinkers recently... I don't know if we're going to continue that. I do feel there are other parts of the world that we've neglected that I'm hoping that we will get to. But I hope that if this is the last Chinese thinker we do for a while, that the listeners have enjoyed some of the time that we've spent on Chinese theorists. And I do hope that nobody interprets these episodes as firmly on the side of uh, or, or not on the side of any particular contemporary state 
which may or may not exist in the territory associated with China. Thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.